This is Alicia Free, a badass belly dancer, musician, and real food enthusiast, here to help you feel a little lighter. Each show will dive into music that makes us want to dance. We'll share secrets of looking smoking hot in costume and everyday life. We'll dote on delicious whole food that makes us glow. And I'll throw in a damn sexy dance move you can try at home. Like many of us, Mael was looking for just a new dancing hobby when she started belly dancing. She took her first classes more than 20 years ago, just about when I started dancing too, and she fell in love. Mael was the featured dancer of a five-star palace in Dubai, performing with a live band. She's currently based in Brussels, Belgium. She is the third European belly dancer that we're featuring on this podcast who has also performed in the Middle East. It's very exciting. And she's also part of the worldwide Salampur community. She is level four certified in both the Jamila and Suhaila formats, which is both prestigious and rare. Even as a high level performer, Mael is still devoted to learning more. Danceable ritual. Mael, do you have a danceable ritual you would like to share? Well, the lucky mom of a two and a half year old little ball called Ulysses in English, it's Ulysse in French. And so one of the things that we started doing together is dancing in the evenings. And it's really funny to see how they get on points, actually. I mean, not full ballet points, but he goes up on his toes and he loves dancing and he loves the rhythm and he really picks up the rhythms, you know, the slowness and when it goes fast. And of course, I did a lot of dancing during my pregnancy. So I think that he's really been surrounded by music and drums. And, and so he loves doing that. He also likes playing finger cymbals with me. My son was playing finger cymbals with me this morning. There you go. <laughs> he was playing them by himself, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> My son's three and a half. And so do you always dance at a certain time of the evening? Is there something that he expects to happen? Not necessarily, but it tends to be kind of after dinner and before going to bed because he's very much a night bird. So he never wants to go to bed. So it's something that we do before giving him a bath and going into the calming down time. So it's not a precise thing, but it's whenever we feel like it and it's pretty regular. Dancing before the bath, I love it. <laughs> that's right. Very cool. How do you choose the music that you guys dance to? Ah, that's very different. So of course, my natural instinct is Arabic music because that's where my heart is. His dad loves hip-hop recently, so even some old hip-hop tubes like from Dr. Dre and stuff like that, he really picks up on it. I mean, Ulysse, my son, will bend his legs and he's really heavy. <laughs> so it's really funny to see how he really expresses music visually. I don't necessarily put kids' songs on, but he likes things that have a strong beat, that's for sure. Nice. I've been so anti-kid song for the yeah. <laughs> first before my son could communicate that he wanted more kid songs. I was like, none of that's happening in my exactly. house. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now he knows all about Spotify. <laughs> He's got his playlist. They're growing on me. Mm -mm. My son too loves Arabic music. Yeah. He's learning the Armenian lyrics for Garun Garun with me right now. <laughs> because we wow. walk in the woods and practice it. Yeah. I'm in a band and we play it. And we're walking in the woods singing because it's spring. The song's about spring and it feels mm -hmm. really good to sing it outside. So it's just so oh, much yeah. fun to invite our kids to be part of our artistic life. Definitely. That's a nice thing to share with them. Danceable song. Is there a danceable song you want to share? 
That was a hard question to answer because really there's so many songs out there. I'm just an absolute fan of Arabic music. But if I had to choose one, I say Mawood from Abdel Halim Hafez is a classical song that all belly dancers should know. But also it's one that is dear to my heart because in order to test for level four in the Suheila Salimbo format, you have to choreograph to a piece of music, one of the classics. And I chose that song because basically it's happy and sad, like many Arabic songs where you go, you know, from deep emotions up and down. But the lyrics really resonated with me and I choreographed each move really precisely. So the choreographic process has us really tell a story and then that's what we do. So it's not about looking beautiful or just feeding the music. It's really why are you doing that move at that specific movement? And I feel that the choreography that I came up with really expresses that well. So that's a song that I put on and it will have me in tears very easily, but also back to joy because that's where it goes afterwards and I must say that I'm very driven by music and it really affects my mood so I have to pay attention to what I listen to otherwise sometimes it gets me sad when I shouldn't be sad or the opposite way so yes Mahmoud if you don't know it it's actually 50 minutes long I believe the original version and just the entrance when Abdel Halim is not yet singing they play the whole music part and then they repeat it and then he comes in and it's really important for belly dancers not to just know the Mahmoud six minute version that you can dance to but the full it's really an odyssey or something it's a real adventure because it goes through all the range of emotions as I said but when you dance live to a band the band might choose to repeat different parts of the music and so that's why if you know the whole thing then you both know the whole story and you can choose which part you want to emphasize when you're dancing wonderful so I'm going to put a link to the video of Mael doing this choreography that she created in the show notes and it's gorgeous I just watched it. Thank you. And you just see how somber. You start in the beginning with a very serious look to you. I'm a very smiley dancer. <laughs> so actually that performance was recorded in a show I organized in Belgium after I tested for level four. And when I came on stage, people did the usual stuff of, you know, cheering, clapping. And then they saw my face and they were like, oh, something's going on. And what's interesting is my dad was in the audience and, you know, I'm talking about my parents in, in the story that I'm telling through my dance. And afterwards he was like what was wrong when you were doing that dance you seemed so dark and blah 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 and I had to explain to him that I was really telling a story and it was more like theater than just you know dancing happy entertainment but he felt touched because when you actually choreograph the piece you also choreograph where you're going to project your energy in the audience so Suheda has what she calls a grid and basically in order not to dance to a black hole because usually when you're on stage you can't see much she has you place people in specific places and when you choreograph choreographing once you've done it you actually have to maybe project to the back if that's you know you want to project to your parents that's where they are or you want to project to the front if you're talking to yourself as a child it can be actually other people and it can be yourself at different stages of your life as well and that's magical because people feel it that you're not just dancing out and just looking randomly you're bringing them in or you're sometimes blocking them out and it really brings something different to the audience and the experience of watching the dancer. Very cool. 
And near the end of the piece, you get very lightened up and your energy changes so much over the course of the six minute piece. So thank you so much for explaining what's happening inside of your mind too, when you're doing it and your intention behind it. Well, that's just one of the gifts I got given through learning with Suhaila and I found it really powerful. You know, if you're just watching YouTube randomly, maybe, you know, you like the costume or you like the dance or you like the music, whatever. But if you know what's happening, of course, it's a live art. So you can't feel what you felt when people were in the audience. Some people really came up to me afterwards and they were like, wow, that was so powerful. I got really touched. But I'm happy that it's recorded, even though it's, of course, a live art and nothing replaces being in the audience. Right. And this is being recorded during the pandemic when we're all at home, isolating in place. So thinking about how different it is to be in person seeing someone perform and how we just can't do that right now exactly as i was saying some people are organizing i know live hafflers and that's great because it keeps the community together and it keeps people dancing so it's always better than nothing but being in a room with other people and experiencing something unique because each performance is always different is an incredible experience which i hope we will be able to share again very soon And what a great point you have about knowing the entire song, especially for these Egyptian pieces that are so long, like Al-Fulela Walela, right? That's 40 minutes long and the whole thing is gorgeous, but we usually dance to seven minutes of it, right? But what you're saying about dancing with a live band, you don't know what part they're going to want to go into. Exactly. And that's very, very important because of course now we have Spotify and iTunes and stuff. But when I started dancing over 20 years ago, I had to go to a street in Brussels. We call it the Moroccan street because basically it's like Morocco for real, like all the shops sell Moroccan stuff. And then they have Arabic music shops and I would go there and buy a CD with the latest hits and learn about music. But nowadays everything's available like this. But I would really research and try to find songs and find the source. And if I liked a singer, I would try and find the whole album. And I would just listen to Arabic music the whole time because there are cues that are specific to Arabic music. So as a belly dancer, it's really important that you listen over and over again to the cat catalog of the classics so that if you perform to a live band or if you're in an Arabic surrounding you will understand what people are reacting to as well because it's always a funny experiment for a westerner to go to a concert (laughs) with an Arab audience and of course you know we're used to clapping at the end but they clap whenever they feel like it whenever they feel connected whenever something exciting is happening and they want to enhance it so that's important to know and that's one of the things that I think really helped me with dancing because I know Arabic music a lot just from the countless hours of listening that I've done. And I feel like some of the pieces, some of the classics, it's hard the first few times you listen to them, you're like, I don't know if I want to listen to this much. But then you realize why they're classics when you really let them stick to you. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny how your tastes change. Sometimes you might listen to something and not really like it. And then you come back to it later. And then something has happened in your marrow. And then now it resonates with you. I let certain instruments get in my way. For example, if I hear a keyboard or a synthesizer and some Arabic music, I'm yes. like, oh God, do I have to listen to this? Because I want to hear the and I want to hear the accordion. Like there are all these different things that I want to hear, of course, the violins. But there are so many different versions out there too of different songs. Of course, there's the one that made it all famous. There's that one that should definitely be listened to, but also exploring and finding versions that really feel good to you for whatever reason. Exactly. Definitely worth it. Yes, and I recommend there's a website called 
melodyforarab.com. Everything is free on there and that's not why I recommend it, but it's a great place to browse because you can just choose an artist and then you have all the different albums. You can click on the title, just listen to them. It's a bit like Spotify. There's no end. You can go from one to the other. But whenever I like an artist, I will go on melodyforarabs.com and then I'll look at everything that the artist has done and then maybe I'll try to see if there are other songs and of course I'll switch to YouTube as well and try and see. But that's the thing. Exploring is really important so that you don't end up dancing to the same version of the same song. Right. Especially because you might collaborate with a band at some point and they're not going to play the same version. Exactly. That's right. No. You studied with Farah Bakali, who you call the Tina Turner and the Marilyn Monroe of belly dance, an explosive mixture of wild energy and distinct glamour. You say that Farha opened the doors of your professional dance career. Tell us more about learning with her and what made it so life-changing. Yes, so Farah is a famous dancer in Belgium. She is of Moroccan origin and she was self-taught and she recently stopped dancing, but she was dancing during the golden era of belly dance here and basically I started dancing professionally between quotation marks because I was not very ready or seasoned but yet some people asked me to dance so I was like oh why not you know I was a student I just arrived in Brussels and I thought why not and then people started talking to me about Farah and they said oh you know if she's dancing and you're sitting there but then you want to stand up and dance she'll make you sit down or she's hit people there were all these wild stories about her but she had moved to Paris at the time so she was dancing in the French capital. And then I was actually dancing for two years as a student and I had to stop. And then I was missing belly dance after I graduated. And I was looking for a teacher because in Brussels, I had not found anybody who was inspiring me. And then I took a workshop with another dancer who told me she was taking classes with Farah. And it happened that I had just moved back to Brussels. And so I was full of fear when I went there because I thought she was, you know, very hard on people or something. And it was kind of love at first sight. So I went there and she was actually very simple and she looked so young in spite of all the experience she had and I think it must have been in October and December 31st so for New Year's Eve she already asked me if I wanted to dance with her and perform in duo. She had only performed with one other dancer back in the days and we were of course of a very different level but she loved experimenting and she loved the fact that you know I was young and blonde and absolutely not Arab while she was Moroccan dark hair beautiful and it really worked but it was a difficult experience because she was self-taught and she was very much an improvisational dancer so she was not about following choreographies and so even though we had decided we would do this and this she just felt like the moment it was calling for it she would do something else and so I really had to like keep a close eye on her and do my best and fortunately enough I was a good learner but I would say that her method of teaching was very well intended but sometimes it was a bit like you know I'll throw you in the pool and if you manage to swim then you've learned to swim and fortunately I didn't sink but she took me to real Arab cabarets where we would dance at 4 or 5 a.m. She took me to all different places the world I didn't even suspect in Brussels because we have a huge community so we you know would go to Moroccan places, Turkish places, Lebanese places and then also sometimes even Greek places because the Greeks are on the verge of Middle Eastern so yeah she was full of energy she was really charismatic and I feel very lucky that she shared all her knowledge with me and that she took me as her protege. That sounds like so much fun. 
It was. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> Where is she now? Do you know? Oh, she's still in Brussels. She was still teaching until recently, but then there are so many dancers teaching now. There's some great people, but it's not a regulated profession, so anybody can teach. And she used to be one of the very few teachers, so she had lots of students, but now people with busy lives and are always ready to travel so far to take classes and blah, blah, blah. So she's moved on to doing other things now. Cool. I'm definitely going to include some dance links to her in the show notes as well. She's a character. And again, these are videos recorded from years and years ago. So it's a total different experience when she was live. But yeah, definitely. She's my Tina Turner slash Marilyn Monroe of belly dance. <laughs> so cool. You go to California twice a year to study at the Salampore School. Some of us belly dancers stop taking classes or might get stagnant. How do you keep yourself motivated to keep learning more, especially when it involves you traveling quite a distance? Yes, I did that. Traveling to California twice a year for years and years. I must say now that I'm a mom, it hasn't happened so much. But what's kept me going is really the selling for school, I must say. When I took my first workshop with Suhail, I was actually in Belgium in 2006. I had been dancing for a while. I was dancing alongside Farah. And Suhela had me do push-ups and crunches and planks. And I was like, what the hell does it have to do with dance? <laughs> and I was shocked because I was really not a person who liked sweating or efforts or anything. But I knew that it was something special and I just loved it. And I cried when she went because I was like, oh my God, she's such a great teacher. And then I decided to travel because I just wanted to have the experience with her. She would come to Belgium, but I was just just not enough and then I actually started sponsoring her as well so bringing her but the school it's important because it just keeps evolving so of course there's Jamila format the Suhela format both taught by Suhela and now also other teachers who are level five but because Suhela is of course still alive she's changing things and taking on new knowledge so everything keeps evolving so you're basically never done with it and also what's great is that a lot of dancers who feel like they're getting stuck in their education discover the Salimpuri program and they have to start again at level one like we all do whatever your knowledge and that's a very humbling process when you've been maybe teaching yourself and you have to go back to the basics with other people who've never had a class and who are just learning and who might even do better than you do because they don't have any bad habits it's not really bad habits but other ways of doing things that you've been doing because that's the way you've been taught and now you have to put that aside for a while you don't have to forget about it you just have to put it aside start again from scratch and just be reassured that you will be able to integrate everything that you knew before but you have to first go through that process so that's what's great is that everybody's very humble through that we all kind of been through a rite of passage so it gives us something in common and you see people evolve if you look back and that's the thing I tell my students now as well is I wasn't born doing undulations that way or squeezing my glutes to make my hips move etc etc I've been through each step of the way and I've seen it myself and I've seen it on so many people that I can really guarantee that it will make people better. And so that's how we never get bored because there's just so much to learn. And Suhela is, you know, trained in belly dance, but other dance forms and also in theater training. And so there's just so much. People sometimes say, oh, you're just a belly dancer. I'm like, <laughs> well, first of all, we say belly dancing in English, but we say danse orientale in French. And that's in the plural because of course there's Arax Charki, Arax there's Saidi, there's also Dapki and Khaliji and all these things that you know you can perfect and they're all very much a dance of their own. No, great points. Have you performed in any Balanat shows? 
Yes, I have. First time it was in California. So I lived in California for eight months and I was part of the Suhela Dance Company and therefore of Balanage. And so the first dance usually that you learn is the pot dance. So I was a pot dancer back in 2011. And then I started sponsoring Suhela, so bringing her for workshops in Belgium as of 2011, actually. And I've been bringing her once or twice a year ever since. And she created Inter Omri. That must have been in 2014. I think and she had her true perform it in San Francisco and she said she would not record show at least she would record it just for the records but not to release it because she wanted it to be a live experience and indeed it's such an intimate show that you have to be in the audience and when I watched that show I was like that's what it is people need to see this Yet, not all my European fellow dancers are going to travel to the States. So I thought, I really want to bring Inter Omri to Europe. But that was a big endeavor and a big process because, of course, you know, there were six dancers. And I thought, well, what if we bring Balanat at the same time? Because then people can actually be in Balanat and then watch Inter Omri and it becomes a whole community thing. And then we make it a festival. <laughs> and so I thought I was crazy. She said, are you sure you just don't want to focus on one show? And I was like, no, I think it's going to work because it's the two shows at once. And so we started the organization of having people divided into tribes per countries and having to audition. So they have to audition by dancing a piece called One Through Eight, which is the last choreography that Jamila Salim choreographed. And it's very short, but very intense. And so that was a whole experience of creating all the marketing stuff and then getting people interested, not just in the belly dance community, because I had a theater that was like 600 seats and I really wanted to fit it in. And two shows, one after the other, into Omri and Balanat and actually it worked really well and it worked so well that afterwards Sabri was like I want to do this in Sweden and then actually it was going to be the 50th anniversary of Balanat and so they decided to organize a whole 50th anniversary tour so then Balanat went to Sweden London Brussels there was a whole tour in the States and now it's become just a permanent thing whereby I mean of course it depends on who is bringing Balanat and we were supposed to be in Prague just a week ago on April 13th I think it was and of course due to the coronavirus the show was cancelled but yet we had a zoom call with all the people who were going to be on stage and it was something like over 70 or 90 but it's become a great thing because it really brings people in its community it's sharing the stage together it's having you know very experienced dancers with a bit less experienced dancers even though you have to be level two in both formats to perform but yes I think for the school there's been a before and after Balanat and for me definitely that was a huge project and I said okay well I was going to have kids before then I said hey sorry <laughs> I've got this thing in November 2016 kids are going to have to wait for after and so that's what happened it was the end of October and then decided to get pregnant and I got pregnant just a few months after <laughs> wow you planned your pregnancy around bringing Balanat into Omri to Belgium <laughs> because I knew it was going to be crazy and I'm very much a one awesome. yeah I mean it's not that I don't like teamwork but I'm a hard worker and I am quite a control freak so I do a lot of it myself so indeed I was like no no no, we do this first and then we'll have kids but of course because it was so fun then there was a whole tour after so then I had to deal with Balanat and kids at the same time <laughs> beautiful I love all the beautiful motherhood mm -hmm. themed things you're saying right now yeah yeah it's yeah. not always easy but 
especially now, like no daycare and supposed to work. I mean, not me. I'm on sick leave, so that's kind of the luck of it. But otherwise, yeah, it's intense to do everything with a toddler around. Oh, I can't imagine trying to have both parents work 40 hours a week like my brother and his yeah. wife, my sister-in-law, are trying to do right now nah. with their three kids at home. Yeah, something doesn't work that's in the great. equation for sure. My husband and I can both work half time because we have an assistant who's amazing who's listening yeah. to this when she's going to hear the recording. <laughs> I just can't even imagine. No, I know. It's really hard for some people. Let's do some dancing. Damn sexy dance move. What is one dance move that you have perfected and love? Rather than a dance move, it's a prop and it's called Voy. Voy is veil plus poi. So there's a story behind it. I lived in New Zealand when I was 18. So actually I did learn poi with some Maori people when I was over there. And then I was always a fan of veils. Silk veils were only starting in Europe at that time. I think they've been around the States much longer. But I had this vision of having the poi and a veil, but didn't quite know how to make it work. And then actually a dancer from Montreal, Diana Beaufay, she did the mix and another dancer from Montreal, Aziza, learned it with Diana and she was teaching in Duisburg in Germany at uh, Leila Tuvana's festival. And one of my friends was there and took the workshop. So then she told me, oh yeah, yeah, I did something with a poi in a veil, etc, etc. So that was my friend Karine, who's been a friend forever. And so we started playing with it and we ordered, you know, some veils from Akai Silk, which are amazing. Some really big semi-circular ones and indeed, voice often seen with two voids it's a bit of a juggling act while what we were doing is having one and using it first as a veil and then hey hey it's more than a veil so that's a prop that i've loved perfecting and performing with and the fun was that in 2016 so before balanat suheda was like hey why don't you choreograph something for balanat because she sometimes has some highly certified dancers do that and i chose the piece of music that's a bit balkanic from a belgian band that i kind of fell in love with and i created a choreography to it and then it wasn't a 2016 Balanat but afterwards it was integrated into the show and it's a very popular number now in Balanat so that was great and that choreography can actually be learned on the Sunning for School online classes so it's just a pay-per-view so if you just wanted to there's a technique class to learn the voice and then there's the choreography as well that you can learn on there. That's wonderful to know because when I saw the video of you doing a performance with the voice, I was like how do I do that? It just to me it looks so <laughs> much better than using two and I just was in Thailand and I they spin poi on the beach all over the place you know every night my son was pretending to go to sleep so that we'd walk home and then he would wake up so we could watch the fire shows <laughs> oh that's great I mean the fire is amazing but it's a juggling art so it's different from dancing indeed with the flow with the arts very different right mm-hmm. yeah, yeah 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 and so when I bought my set of poi I'm like these are going to be the poi that I turn into veil poi you know it's yeah. so much better with one to me so it's great to know that I can learn on the Salon Poi school website totally yeah there's a lot of things that you can learn on there a lot of specialty classes that you can just take that class and then you have one month to learn it so you can play it over and over again for a month (laughs) wonderful yeah Suhela said something like you could take a different class every day for two years and you would almost get through the catalog of classes that are available yeah that's right that's for the full online classes subscription and that's like a monthly or yearly subscription wonderful what an honor too for Suhela to ask you to choreograph for a Balanat show definitely that was very intimidating (laughs) (laughs) 
it was very intimidating and then I did it like you need space to be able to rehearse with your voice and right. it's very intense on your arm <laughs> swinging like I mean start practicing the dance again for Balanat in Prague and I was like oh my god who the hell choreographed this <laughs> and I can't blame anybody because it was me <laughs> No, I can see with your choreography that you really appreciate the intricate and almost unusual moves in your choreography and mastering those. Yeah, it's true. It's a tricky one. And I must say that when we started rehearsing it, <laughs> some of my girls, I mean, one of them, she's a bit symptomatic. She's like, yeah, sure, it's never going to work <laughs> until she manages. But there's a level of adrenaline when you perform it indeed, because we wrap it around the arm and then have to unwrap it. And so these are a bit of tricky moves indeed. It could totally go wrong and it's gone wrong quite a few times in rehearsals, but I'm always like, well, if it's gone wrong in the rehearsal, it's going to be fine on stage. Mm-hmm. Can I ask how you attach the veil? I've seen people use like hair elastic. No, no, no. You have to make knots. But that's actually, I believe I made a separate video in the tutorial. So Oh, it's in there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't checked myself on that video for a while, but normally I did a separate video to show how you attach it. You have to like put the poi and then you make like a little pocket by folding a corner of the veil. And then you make two little knots and then that's how it's Done. Lovely. You get everything you need right there in that tutorial. And it's mm-hmm. online and you can access it anytime. That's right. So good. You wrote that you prefer to perform in Brussels. And in some of your videos on YouTube, you can see that you adore the audience and many audience members look pretty Middle Eastern. In addition to having Farah show you around, how did you connect to the Middle Eastern community in your city and start performing for them? So definitely Farah was a great introduction because she just took me everywhere around. You have to know that we have a huge Middle Eastern community in Brussels, especially Moroccan, that's like the majority. But we also have some Lebanese people, Syrian, Persian. And actually, it was even before Farah, because before I met Farah, I was already dancing in like a Lebanese restaurant. And what's funny is, of course, you know, I'm blonde and I definitely do not look Middle Eastern. So people kind of look at you like you're the pretty doll and sure, you know, you're there just because you're pretty. And sometimes people think either Swedish or Russian or Polish and they just assume I am. (laughs) They don't think I'm Belgian because basically a Belgian doesn't quite look like anything specific. But then when they see me dance and they indeed experience the fact that I know what I'm doing and I'm doing it the way it should be done, but I'm definitely not, you know, dancing Zumba on belly dance. And then they get really touched because, of course, they love that you're interested by their culture and they love that you're expressing the music and then they get curious. So I think that's how I've managed to connect with them. And also I'm very smiley and I make sure that I respect people when I dance. I always look at women so as not to disrespect them. I don't try to flirt with guys, etc., etc. Then they really appreciate that. And I've mostly danced in Lebanese restaurants and Persian as well, where in Persian restaurants, you have like the whole family. And I've danced in one place for like 15 years. So I have seen kids grow up to be teenagers and adults. And they just love it. They just love that I'm there and I'm dancing and doing something that most of them can't really do, actually. Also, that's the thing, because when I started dancing, there were some Moroccan dancers around. And then now... I can't think of one. It's mostly Westerners now. If you're interested by the culture, if you know what you're doing, and if you show that you have the knowledge, it impresses them. And one of the Lebanese owners of a restaurant I was dancing at would always say, you have such great technique. You're definitely the best. And I was like, wow, usually people say, you know, oh, you're so beautiful or your costume is awesome. You have such great technique. That was like the ultimate compliment for me. 
Because that's what you focused on, too. You yeah, worked so exactly. hard on that. Yeah. So Lebanese restaurants for the entryway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now let's take a moment to dote on delicious whole food that makes us dancers glow. Featured light in my body food. What is one vegan whole food ingredient that you love? So there's plenty because I was born in a family with, you know, vegetarian microbiotic parents and who had one of the first health stores back in the days. But if I had to choose one of many, I say chickpeas are great because first of all, I love couscous. That's like one of my favorite dishes. And in Belgium, it's like a national dish. Basically, spaghetti bolognese, couscous, and other Belgian dishes are national dishes. So I love the chickpeas in the couscous. I love them as well in hummus, of course. <laughs> love my hummus. And then I haven't actually tried that. I just love even chickpeas out of the can. But for vegan, you can replace, you know, the white of the egg by the water from the chickpeas in a can. And then you can actually make even chocolate mousse with it. I haven't tried it, but that's something I should try one of these days. I included a recipe for vegan chocolate peanut butter mousse that uses avocado as oh, the thickener. As well. Yeah. yeah. In episode 39 with Sarah Beyer. And I love the idea of using chickpea. When I cook beans, I cook a lot of beans at once and then I freeze them in small containers, you know, what I'm not going to use for the week. Yeah. And I love the smell of chickpeas cooking. <laughs> it's probably the best bean smell <laughs> yeah i'm a canned chickpea girl just because i can't plan ahead usually to, <laughs> to soak them and then cook them i make a big production of it <laughs> mm, yeah <laughs> There's another recipe that I love too. I think it's in the Veganomicon, this cookbook that I love. Mm -hmm. And it's udon noodles with chickpea and white miso in it. Oh, wow, yeah. The chickpeas, let me count the ways. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you can use them a lot. Oh, falafels, right? <laughs> falafels for one thing. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes they'll mix it with fava beans too and other yes. beans too, right? In the yeah, falafel mix. That's right. I feel so bad for people who think they don't like beans. I'm like, do you know how many beans there are in the world? I know. At least in the States, there's like a lot of Mexican food. So there's beans. But right. in traditional Belgian, French cuisine, it's not that much. I never ate beans growing up. No, I did because my parents were vegetarian until I was like two or three year old. And then I have an older brother who started going to my grandparents. He would eat meatballs, whatever. So then they were like, okay, well, whatever. But my family never ate much meat. Like a lot of meals were vegetarian. And then when I was eight, I decided I was going to be vegetarian because I was in love with animals. And I was very aware of how meat was produced and the conditions that they were slaughtered in. And so I decided I would stop meat completely at eight. And my mom was like, sure. But the only thing is when I do meat, which she does sometimes, then you know, I would have to make myself something else. But I've been cooking ever since I was a kid. So with a lot of vegetarian recipes. My husband's parents are a macrobiotic mm -hmm. as well. Oh, wow. I don't know very many people that have grown up macrobiotic. So that's <laughs> awesome that you also did. Oh, my mom would travel with her pans around to make sure that she would not cook in utensils that had contained meat before. So <laughs> oh, wow. She was extreme. She was that serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, they were very serious. I know. They're the ones who eat more meat than I do. So... <laughs> See? People change. <laughs> yep, of course. That's the beauty of life. You yeah. can change when it's time. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the things I love about what I eat, though, is I just really feel like I'll, I have no problem feeding it forever. Mostly whole food and plant-based. There's no guilt in it. I just feel so good about it. And that's mm -hmm. my husband's parents. That's what they've eaten for the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's inspiring to yeah. find something that works. That's right. You were the featured dancer of a five-star palace in Dubai. 
dancing to a live orchestra every night. Tell us about that. That in so many ways, it sounds like a dream come true. What do you miss about it? What don't you miss about it? I must say, I was not very much prepared. So basically, what happened was my teacher Fada Bakadi organized a competition for dancers to dance to a live band, and her agent, her impresario, was there. He was called Toro Siranosian of the House of the Lebanese Artists, so based in Beirut. And I won the competition, and the prize was a contract in Dubai. And yes, it was a dream come true because, I mean, what else? I definitely wanted to go, but I was just looking back. I was just not prepared. <laughs> and it was funny because it was back in 2006. And actually, I think one month after I took my first workshop with Suhaila and I hadn't gone to, to Dubai yet. And I said, hey, I'm going to go to Dubai. And she was like, oh, one of my students is there. She's called Sabria. And I was like, sure, I'm sure there's a hundred of dancers over there. How am I going to find her? But anyway, Sabria's name in the corner of my mind. And so I went. The thing was also, it was war in Lebanon that summer. So even though I was in Dubai, not in Lebanon, of course, the mood throughout the Middle East was a bit heavy. And I got there and I just didn't know my classics well enough. <laughs> so that's all these things that I did learn at the studying for school afterwards, I wish I had known before, but I didn't. However, I was good at not sinking when thrown into a pool without knowing how to swim. So I managed my way. <laughs> it was a contract of one month. And then actually they offered me other contracts after, but it's a very lonely life when you live in a hotel room. And that's the thing. Also, the audience were mostly Arab men in Dubai. And I was used to performing for families and, you know, different people and over there dancing. And sure enough, I love dancing to live music, but being in my hotel room afterwards wasn't quite the dream life I had dreamt of. Fortunately, I met Sabria because I had a hairdresser over there who told me about her. So Sabi, whom I call her <laughs> Sabi, that's her short name, actually came to watch my show once and then we bonded right away. And then that was the start of a great friendship. So it was a positive experience because I've done it and I'm happy that I've been able to do that and do it well. But that's just not a life for me. And I was lucky. I visited Sabria afterwards, like on a contract she had in Tunisia. And Sabria is a live music addict. So she says, you know, it's not a life that's easy, but she's just in love with it. But yeah, for me, it wasn't enough in the balance to want to keep doing that. I just prefer to be in Brussels and dance, but do many other things as well. Yeah, the addiction theme, Suhaila and Sabria have both yeah. talked about you just want more. You know, I feel so spoiled in some ways that I'm in a band. Totally, yeah. Because I'm part of creating that drug for myself and others. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> totally. Let's play dress up. Make you shine, costume tip. What is one costume tip you want to share? The costume tip is the costume itself. <laughs> so in Belgium, we are very lucky to have Bella Costumes. And so the Turkish manufacturer, they have a shop in Ghent, which is like an hour away from Brussels. And Farah was actually one of their first customers. And they would come to Farah's house to show costumes and tailor them, etc., etc. So Farah was one of their, definitely their first customers. And so when I had to buy a costume, you know, before Amazon, and all of that I just went to Bella but once you've experienced the best it's harder to go for cheap stuff so I must say that's one thing is that you only make a first impression once 
And of course, you have to have a costume that fits your level in the dance as well. You know, having beautiful costume but not being able to dance is not going to make you pass the test. But sometimes I see great dancers with a costume that looks more amateur. And it's a bit of a shame because unfortunately, it just does not match. And so it's like a painting where the frame can ruin the painting or can make it even more sublime. Well, you have to watch out for that. So sometimes people like to buy a lot of costumes and turn them around but I believe in quality and also Bella costumes are so well made and I promise you I don't get any money for advertising them but they're so well made that you know you can wash them you can resell them I have some other costumes as well because it's nice to have a variety but definitely having high quality costumes is a must for professional dancers so they're around $500 usually I've never bought a fancy you know I bought beautiful handmade bras but I've never bought a full-on fancy costume right it really depends (laughs) They don't really have price tags on them, so it depends a bit when you go, if you're a good customer or not, sometimes you get rebates. 500 is a good average, but I've had some that were over $1,000. But you yeah. feel like a million dollars in them. <laughs> yeah, I have a cover that's worth probably, I don't know, like $50,000 or something like that because I have 40 costumes. Times, 40 costumes? Yeah, $20,000 wow. in there, something like that. <laughs> when I went wow. to California in 2011, I split my costumes in two because I didn't want to give the full responsibility of the whole thing to anyone in case somebody's place burned out or something. So I was like, okay, right? I'll stock half of them here and half of them there. But yeah, I have a lot of costumes. Wow. One of my friends who's a burlesque dancer, she had her suitcase full of her vintage costumes, you know, stolen in a subway or something. And we all did a fundraiser for her. Just your costumes, they're precious things that you cultivated and you've chosen so specifically. Totally. And Bella costumes, they're unique. I mean, some of them, you know, sometimes they have two that look kind of alike, but otherwise they're, you know, they don't make the same costume twice normally, unless it's a true order. And also their memories. That's the thing. Like some costumes I don't really wear much. I mean, one of my first costumes was a very bright pink one. And I must say that lately, after motherhood, I was like, I'm never going to wear that color again. It just doesn't work in my life anymore. And yet, I had a thousand one nights party for bank people. It was like a Christmas business party. And it was kind of dark over there because I had gone to check the setting before. And I was like, that's the perfect costume. So you never know. I mean, my memory works by moments. Like I can remember where people were sitting or what I was wearing and stuff like that. So it's hard for me to to sell my costumes because I get attached. I just looked at their website. Their costumes are gorgeous. (laughs) Actually, they don't have many costumes on there. And that's on purpose. They just don't want people to just copy and look at the photos and go elsewhere and say, hey, yeah, yeah. So you cannot judge the variety of what they have to offer from their website. They have so much. Well, now with Instagram and stuff, people, you know, have the hashtag Bella Costumes. They have a big variety, different styles. You know, they also follow fashion, of course. So comes and goes. But usually classics work best. I mean, Fada, she always had pretty classic classic costumes but it was great it was nice and simple well if you have too many things on them sometimes you get sick of them too fast because the fashion goes but yeah many dancers wear Bella costumes and they're actually also very comfortable and they don't fall apart (laughs) so that's one thing because when you see the bras you know really hold your breast in them and yeah they really hold well 
I didn't know there were belly dance costumes that didn't fall apart. And uh, those ones. <laughs> wow. I have friends that I've done it once or twice. We've put them in the washing machine, of course, in a pillowcase pillow or something. But I don't recommend doing it regularly. In a washing machine? Yes, I'm delicate. Oh. One of my friends was doing it. Before that, I was always washing them myself in the bathtub and blah, blah, blah. But I was like, oh, I'm too lazy now. <laughs> So she's done it and the beading, nothing is glued. It's all sewn on and it's very well beaded. So that's the thing. And that's why they keep and you can resell them because they don't fall apart. Wow. As Will Durant said, we are what we repeatedly do. So let us repeatedly do what the divinely lovely do. Feel good. Look good habit. Do you have a feel-good, look-good habit that you want to share? So that's where I'm entering a phase of my life that's a bit special because unfortunately I was diagnosed with breast cancer March 4th. So it's just a little less than two months ago. So I don't have habits anymore because I'm just kind of recovering from the first operation I had and trying to find what's going to work for me. But what I want to really share with all women regarding breast cancer are three things. First of all, don't think that it happens only to others because I'm less than 40. I was still breastfeeding my toddler. I'm in good shape. I eat healthy food. I do sports. There's no history of breast cancer in my family and yet it happened to me. Second thing is check your breasts regularly because I was fortunate enough to feel a lump in my chest and I went and saw my doctor right away and then I got a test very quickly as well and that's what saved my life because they caught my cancer in stage two and there are four stages in breast cancer and of course catching it early is the key. So make sure there's plenty of tutorials on YouTube or elsewhere on the web what you have to look for because it's not just lumps, it's how your nipples look, etc, etc. So make sure that you check them regularly. And then third, I would say don't underestimate the effect of stress because I'm healthy and all the things that I said before, but the only factor I'm guilty of is being an adrenaline junkie. I used to be a dance teacher, a performer, workshop organizer, event organizer. I worked part-time in an office, so I would never really stop. And I was under a lot of stress. And basically, stress is a common denominator in women who, like me, seem fit and healthy, but develop breast cancer. So it's not a habit, but it's just a warning that really it's important to check how your breasts are doing and how you're doing and make sure that if there's too much stress, then stop before your body says stop. I'm sorry, I'm taking that all in. Yeah, it's so new to me. As I said, you know, two months ago and then three weeks after knowing I had breast cancer, I got an operation. So it's a lot to take on and basically you go through it and then you only start thinking. But yeah, it's more common than you think. Actually, one woman out of six, oh no, out of eight, sorry. It depends on where you look. If you look at books from 10 years ago, they would say one woman out of 10. Lately, I was hearing one woman out of eight. And very recently, I've seen sometimes one woman out of six will develop breast cancer. So that's a lot. And amongst the one out of, let's say, eight, because that's the most common figure I have encountered, 10% will get it before 40. So it's only one in 10 of the ones that get it. So the average age for breast cancer is 68. So much later than 
and my age, but still 10% will get it before 40. So mammographies in Europe only start when you're 50. And there's a reason for that because the density of the breasts in young women doesn't make it possible to pick up breast tumors from a mammography. But that's why you really have to learn to touch your breasts and feel what's normal and what's not and look at what's looking odd as well in terms of nipples or having an area that's changing or having a red zones. So it's really something I wasn't aware of. And it's just because I was breastfeeding that I was touching my breast and that I felt it. So I feel very lucky that I picked it up and that I got treated fast. You know, you're actually the second dancer that we featured that is recovering from breast cancer. All right. And she was also very young too. Mm -hmm. Johanna Zenobia. Joanna? Yeah. Do you know Johanna Zenobia? No, I don't. I haven't listened to all your podcasts, but I wasn't even listening to podcasts before, I must say. You've given me that habit. <laughs> Yay! Because Seriously, and I'm like, it's so great. Yeah, you can listen to them while you're washing dishes, driving. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I was like, why wasn't I doing that before? So yeah, yeah, I'll have to look for that one up. That's Johanna Zenobia. There's a two-part interview with her. Okay, great. And she talks about the flow arts too, so I think you'd enjoy that part. Okay, great. I was doing some work with a breast cancer education organization in Malaysia with Muslim women. And it was amazing what some people would just hide and not deal with for years. Yeah, I know. It happens a lot. Even here, I was, you know, yeah. I've been watching all these programs with women and they're like, oh, I felt something and they wait and they wait and then they go and it's stage four. Yep. I don't know if I waited one day or two, but I know that I went to my doctor and my doctor was like, well, your breastfeeding was probably just something to do with that. And I was leaving on the trip. So she said, come back after your trip, it's still there. And so I went back 10 days after and I was like, it's still there. So then she sent me for, what is it called first? It's an echography. And I called the hospital and they were like, sure, end of April, which was like a month and a half after. And I was like, well, I don't think I can wait that long. <laughs> and so I insisted a bit and I got an appointment the day after. After. And then they used the needle to take some cells, and that was on the Thursday. And on the Tuesday, my doctor called me up to say that it was cancer. So, yeah, it was very fast. My mother's mother and my mother's aunts, they had breast cancer and died of breast cancer. And my mom recently got a test that said she doesn't have the gene for it, mm -hmm. yeah. which I was shocked because my whole life I was just thinking like breast cancer is part of our family. You know, yeah. that's just something to really be aware of. So really, like you're saying, it happens to people, yeah. you know, there doesn't necessarily need to be a signal or a behavior that brings it on. Exactly. My mom was shocked because of course, you know, for a mom, it's really hard and my mom doesn't have breast cancer. And so I know that we went to see the surgeon and she came with me and then we came out and I had to do like another test and my mom went back in the surgeon's office and she was like, why? My daughter is healthy. She's not smoking. She's like exercising. Why, why, why? And the surgeon said, there is no reason. But one thing that we notice is often it's people with really, really busy lives and a high level of stress. And when you read a lot about cancer, that's what they say cortisol which is basically produced you know when you're in a fight or flee or freeze mode which i kind of live under in a way because i'm just always doing stuff basically it makes your body tired and exhausts it and maybe that's what allows cancerous cells to develop tumors there's many theories and i'm not a doctor so i don't know either and i don't think they know either <laughs> No, you know, there's so much, there's many theories and I'm trying to be open to conventional medicine and other ways of seeing things. But I think definitely, I mean, stress causes a lot of issues, but I wasn't aware necessarily regarding breast cancer in young women. One phrase that's really helped me with cancer is calling it a complex disease category. Mm -hmm. 
because there are so many theories about it and so much research that's either well done or it's either done for marketing or actually really longitudinal and holistic. I was working for Dr. T. Colin Campbell, who did the China study on cancer in China over the course of 10 years in rural China, where they could actually track people's lives, what was Mm -hmm. happening. It's a great wake up call. My father, when he was dying of cancer, my father worked like crazy. And then he got cancer and all of a sudden it was like, oh, I can't just keep on working. He was a contractor, owned his own business and he just worked his butt off. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it was like, no, actually there's more to life. No, it (laughs) is. Just working your butt off. It's a great wake up call. The thing with me is I was a bit mad at myself because I mean, I had a foot issue that had been going on for a few months and definitely something was telling me that I should lift my foot (laughs) and calm down a little. And then I just kept going as usual. So yeah, but it is, I mean, people who've had cancer say, I mean, some say it's a luck because indeed there's a before and an after. And basically, you know, when you know that death is around you, then you never feel as alive in a way, even though myself, I don't feel like I'm threatened by death now because it's been caught early, even though, of course, even just going into hospital and getting a full anesthesia and all of these things, I'm really not a person who takes a lot of medications. I've never been hospitalized before. Things can always go wrong, even though they usually should go right. But yes, people who've had cancer say that it really creates a before and an after, and most of the time, the after is much better. Have you discovered different ways that you are able to mitigate the stress more in your life? Are there things that you've figured out for yourself yet or things you're exploring? Well, the thing is that, of course, I developed my cancer in a weird situation since coronavirus came at the same time. So I had actually been to South Korea right at the beginning of the coronavirus epidemic. So I came back to Brussels with my partner and my son, and we were quarantined by our employers even before the first cases of coronavirus in Belgium. So nothing was ever normal since I got diagnosed because that happened and I got diagnosed with cancer like 10 days after and so now my life is different anyway because I'm on a sick leave for like a year and nobody's going out and I can't see people so in the beginning I was like well it's kind of cool to get cancer during coronavirus I mean not that I wanted to get it but I'm like well I'm not really missing on anything like I couldn't teach well there's no classes I can't perform well there's no performances (laughs) so I was like it's kind of being organized in a funny way but then of course there's also no daycare so even though I love my son of course you know it's intense to deal with him the whole day and then you know I have so many people supporting me and sending me love but nobody can actually do anything like bring me food or whatever because we're all isolated so it's really hard for people too for my parents as well they really want to help but can't really help because they can't come and see me so I haven't been able to really change my life because my life is totally changed right now from the coronavirus but one thing that I've started taking on is meditation I already tried when I was pregnant we did a full conscience meditation course to prepare the birth of Elise I ended up giving birth in a hospital because it was a little early but in Belgium you have the possibility to give birth in a part of the hospital that's not a hospital it's a birth house so that means that there's no doctors only midwives but if anything goes wrong then they can bring you up two floors and then they have everything to take care of you so I was planning on giving birth without epidural 
And so that course was designed at helping me manage the pain. And it was great. And I did that. I did it without the epidural. And that was a wonderful experience. But I love the music and the rhythm and the dynamics. So even yoga, I have a hard time with because it's too slow for what I like. <laughs> Some of it does feel a little slow. <laughs> yeah. And so meditation, I'm like, really? <laughs> but I have to slow down. Definitely. I have to find a way for my brain to slow down and to be able to slow down. So I've decided that meditation is going to be on the program. And there's a little tool where you can start with 10 minutes of guided meditation and stuff like that. So I'm starting to do that. And also I read in books about patients with cancer that meditation does wonders. That's going to be my new habit. And that's exciting. And then it's one year of treatment, pretty much. I'm starting chemo in two weeks. So I'm starting May 12th. And then in March 2021, we have Balanat in Prague, hopefully, which will have been rescheduled. And so that's kind of the time of my treatment. And I should be able to be stage ready by then hopefully and so that's what I'm looking forward to as the next exciting dance event <laughs> that will celebrate the end of my treatment hopefully oh my heart is right there just imagining the time that you're on stage if it's that show or whatever show comes but it's the time the end of your treatment how beautiful that's going to be yeah thank you <laughs> My husband and I did a 10-day silent meditation retreat in India years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was great because there was nothing to do but meditate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and that kind of set the tone for all my meditation after that. But the guided meditations are so great. And I have an app on my phone called Insight Timer. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many, but I heard this one recommended on another podcast. All right. And it's so great. You sound like a person that's motivated by a challenge or a specific event. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And so Insight Timer, it shows if you miss a consecutive day, yes. you start back at zero. So you want to keep on doing oh, it. Oh no, that's stressful though. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have to be stressful. You can also be like, eh, I missed a day. You know, whatever. I'm starting over. Another 30 days coming now. Uh, okay. But yeah, that's just some... Have you ever heard of Thich Nhat Hanh too? No. He's a Vietnamese Buddhist monk. He was based in France for a while. He's near the end of his life now. The way that he writes, the way that he speaks is a lot about walking meditation and like when you're with your son and you look at a flower and you just smile mm -hmm. at the flower. I mean, it doesn't have to be seated silent meditation, especially because you have your you know, toddler with you. <laughs> yeah. The spelling of his name is pretty wild. T-H-I-C-H-N-H-A-T. Mm -hmm. And then the third part of his name is H-A-N-H. Yes. And Pema Chodron, I feel like those two are just, especially Pema Chodron, if you're going through breast cancer, she's so sassy. I was supposed to be at a Pema Chodron retreat next weekend, but of course it's not happening. But have you heard of yeah, Pema no. Chodron too? No. I think you'd love her too. She's very much more regular life kind of mm -hmm. teaching. Pema Chodron. Yeah, I might have heard about her. Right, I'll have yeah. to check it out again. If you're into podcasts now, I mean, they, have, they both have plenty of podcasts that they've been on. You can just turn that on when you're hanging out with your son. Great. I don't know. Yeah, because meditation, it can seem like such a waste of time or seem like such an inconvenience because of the structure mm -hmm. of our lives and yeah. the emphasis, the value we place on being busy, which is kind of mm -hmm. hilarious in a way. <laughs> Exactly. But that's why coronavirus is so great. I mean, not that it's so great, but that's the one positive thing is that it's changing people's value of time and what's important and what's not. So there's something kind of surrealist or I don't know what it is, but especially me having cancer in this time, kind of a joke of the universe, right? You're <laughs> like, really? I have to go to the hospital right now repeatedly when I don't have coronavirus? <laughs> that's it's wild. weird. <laughs> that's weird. It is. 
Tell us something exciting that you have coming up. I would love to finish my level five certifications. So I'm currently level four in both formats. And lately I've been focusing a lot on teaching and of course on being a mom. So yeah, that's something that I would love to do once I'm done with my treatments or maybe during, I don't know if I get some time to work on it, depending on how my body responds. But yeah, that and then reunited with the Selling Poor community in Prague in March 2021 will be nice things to look forward to for after. Wonderful. Mael, this was a really beautiful conversation. Thank you so much Thank for you. talking so much from your heart and your experience. And as a mom, it was a pleasure to discuss all these topics you know, food, costumes, <laughs> dance, music, yeah. cancer. <laughs> Yep. Every show I wanted to be full of amazing value for your life and adding your experience with cancer to this one has just made it really valuable for us to hear. Well, thank you. I hope that everything will be better after, as people say, and that we'll have managed to make the right changes and look forward to being back on the dance scene after that. But it was a beautiful discussion indeed, and I love listening to your podcast. So thank you very much for sharing all these experiences with all of us. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please subscribe and let your friends know what you got out of this show. Dance with me on YouTube, listen to the music I've selected for you on Spotify, and try some free vegan recipes on AliciaFree.com. This is Alicia Free, hoping this show helped you feel a little lighter.